Welcome to Madame Podcast, hosted by Christian Century. Today's special guest is Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who is a James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor University. She is the best-selling author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Today, she shares about being a pastor's wife, Paul's letters about women, Christian household codes, Reformation theology about women, and so much more. Please stay tuned. Join Dr. Ryan Burge, a leading expert in American religion, for our Homebird Christianity's online teaching class exploring the fascinating world of the nuns, the increasingly significant group of Americans who claim no religious affiliation. Whether you're a student, scholar, or just someone who wants to know more about America's changing religious landscape, this class is for you. Please join Homebird Christianity's class, The Nuns, on May 23rd at noon Eastern Time. It will be hosted by Dr. Tripp Fuller and Dan Koch and taught by Dr. Ryan Burge. It is free, but donations are welcome. Go to www.tripfuller.com to register. Watchfire Media publishes beautiful, spiritually expansive children's books, including the Middle Grades Anthology, Holy Troublemakers, and Unconventional Saints, which tells the stories of 36 people of diverse faith who have rocked the religious boat on behalf of love and justice, and the brand new picture book, Dear Mama God, a simple child's prayer of wonder and gratitude addressed to the divine as a mother. Watchfire Media is a nonprofit independent press dedicated to good stories that help us envision the world that could be. You can learn more at www.watchfire.org. Please order these books today. Joshua Benjamin Lee is a computer science student at UPIT. He builds websites, does video editing, creates graphic design, and more. He works as a consultant at JL. Please contact him at joshua-lee-portfolio.com for more information and to check out his fees. Thank you. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang Podcast. It's so wonderful to have you all here. And today I have a very special guest, Dr. Beth Allison Barr, who is a James Vardaman Endowed Professor of History at Baylor University. Her specialties include European women, medieval and early modern England, and church history. She earned her PhD in medieval history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and is the best-selling author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. How the Subjugation of Women Became Gospel Truth. She is also a pastor's wife and a mom of two great kids. Christianity Today 2022, she, her book was the Book Award finalist in history and biography. Publishers Weekly said, a powerful work of skillful research and personal insight. 
Dr. Jamar Tisby wrote, throughout this book, Barr talks about how her world was transformed. Readers should be ready to have their words, worlds transformed too. So today I am so excited to have Dr. Barr. It has been a, a wild kind of way to book you because you're so busy. <laughs> but thank you so much for coming on my Dong podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm just so glad we worked it out. I am super glad because I almost gave hope. You know, I almost gave up my hope to have you on. And, <laughs> and I've wanted to have you on so badly to discuss this fantastic book. But before we get into that, you are a pastor's wife and you had yeah. kids. I don't know if you wanted to share a little bit about your family. Oh, sure. So we're in an exciting stage. We have two teenagers in the house now. So I have an 18 year old son who graduates actually this year. So I'm trying to prepare myself for that. And then I have a 13 year old daughter who um, oh. keeps life very exciting. So. Oh, that's so, <laughs> so it's fun. It's fun stages. Okay. So the 18 year old is graduating or oh, he is. Said, he's and where graduating. Were he he's actually going to come to Baylor. I was really surprised oh, that he wow. chose Baylor. It was kind uh -huh. of a um, last, I really thought he would end up at a someplace that wasn't here, but I think it was, he plays tennis and he oh. teaches lessons here. Oh, and so I think okay. part of it was he realized he could keep his job teaching lessons oh, and playing tennis. So that's why one of the reasons oh, he stayed. That's so wonderful. So, that is so good because yeah. um, I've wanted kids close to me, but they all went away. So and it <laughs> well, really it was heartbreaking. You know, you you can prepare yourself, but then oh my gosh, when they left, I was like, and I still worry about them every day. Yes. <laughs> They're all yeah. away from home, but I still worry and worry and worry. But that's great that your son will be close by. Yes. Baylor is excellent. Yeah. It's oh yeah. Yeah. That's I think he realized that too. I think he realized that all the things he was looking in other schools were uh -huh. here. And then he had the advantages of here too. So anyway. And it also means that he's happy to be with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, th I think he's realized that being that, um, that I come with advantages at Baylor. <laughs> so I think he's realized that too. So it's a little, it's kind of funny. You but. know, uh, many years ago, I, I, when my oldest was in junior high, he did this, um, uh, what is it called? Johns Hopkins summer program. Oh yeah. And, and he was on my campus and, you know, he, he, the, the program was on my campus right. and I still can't remember. I, I, I won't be able to forget. He was walking on campus and he saw me, he was with a bunch of friends and I was so excited to see him. I said, <laughs> <laughs> and he just had his head down. And then later he called and said, mom, don't ever say hi to me on campus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I'll have to, you know, the good news is that Baylor's big enough that yeah. I think he'll, he'll probably keep his distance and he's a little older. bit. Yeah, yeah. when he was a junior high and he was so embarrassed. To see oh, him. I'm sure my, my son has told me not to tag him in social media. Oh. I'm not supposed to tag him what? or I have anything ask, like that so yeah I have to ask for every post if I can tag yeah I, I yeah I get so mad and my daughter's like mom there's like so many pictures of me all over yes exactly yeah, yeah. that's what I have to ask them too before um before yeah. I put pictures up I'm like but I'm gonna know, put a picture so up of them right right it's our right. duty 
I get, yeah. So my son sometimes will come up to me and say, mom, I'll take a picture with you and you can post it. And okay. so I'm like, good. He gives me it's advanced so nice. permission. Yeah. And my oldest is now mid twenties and I still have to get his permission to post Well, it. I mean, I understand. I, I, I try not I try not to tag other kids' pictures. Like when I take pictures at birthday parties and stuff, I usually don't post pictures of other people's kids on my social media and uh-huh. stuff just because it's just so, you know, yeah. so anyway, it's, oh. it's a challenging world. Yeah, but it's an exciting world. And it is I'm so glad, you know, because some of my guests are mothers and fathers. So it's always wonderful. I had, um, Dean Kelly Brown Douglas. So we talked about parenting for a bit. So it's always fun to meet other scholars, other writers who could kind of relate to my own struggles and pain. (laughs) No, it's exactly right. It's a, um, it's a shared community. So, and it's so wonderful because even in your book, you, you write about your own experiences Mm -hmm. and I love love your book and I yeah and you know award-winning and best-selling and I you know you are friends with Dr. Jamar Tisby yeah yeah and I had him earlier too on Madame podcast and both of you are historians and I did share with him in my high school I loved history and um, my guidance counselor is like, what are you going to do with a history degree? <laughs> so I didn't go into history, but then I look at you and Jamar and I'm like, I could have been a best-selling author. <laughs> I tell people, you know, I'm like, there are historians in so many critical positions. And the, I mean, I'm like, you could do anything with a history degree. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a Yeah. I'm, so I'm totally on the side. I'm like, history history is a really profitable degree to have so I think so and you guys write fantastic books oh thank you (laughs) you know this book it's like because there's some of those books you read and you go I wish I wrote it you know because it's so good I I would never been able to write this but it's (laughs) so good and you you. know so if we can dig into the book now Uh, at the beginning, um, you do write that I never meant to be an activist. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you could kind of expand on this, because you never meant to be an activist. And then now you have kind of become this, you know, you know, fighting for women's rights through this book, and you you speak all over the world. (laughs) It's like, I can't, that was why it was so hard to kind of get a schedule (laughs) to have you on my dog. So share with us a little bit about that. Yes. So um, I think it surprises people when I tell them that I'm really not an extrovert. I'm actually, uh, I'm very introverted uh, and I don't like, I don't like being in the spotlight. Um, I actually, it's the only place I'm comfortable doing this is in the classroom. And that's actually why I've been able to survive all this is I just pretend like I'm teaching. Um, But I never meant, you know, as I said, I really never meant to be, um, to put my story out there. I never meant to become a public face for women's ordination in the church. Um, it was really just a confluence of events when I realized in 2018 that I had a chance to make a difference. And that was when I, you know, I decided I was like, I have the experience. I have the the pedigree, so to speak, of a Baptist, <laughs> of an evangelical woman. Uh-huh. Um, I have the the credentials, 
as a scholar, um, as an established scholar. And, and then I had the opportunity to write. So Mm -hmm. I had a press that reached out to me and I was like, okay, maybe I can make a difference. So that was, um, so it really was just, I, uh, it was really just like, maybe this will help. I was just kind of a shot in the dark, um, to see if I could speak into this conversation in a way. And it worked. (laughs) It worked. (laughs) So, and I'm, you know, and I've sort of found a comfortable space now because I'm like, I'm not advocating for my own ordination. I'm not trying to be a pastor, but I can support other women. And I'm, I feel really comfortable supporting other people. And so that's, I think what gives me the confidence. Cause I'm like, I can help these other people. And, and that I think enables me to stay out there. Wow. Thank you for doing that. Because, you know, when you're writing all this, it's like, go because we need more voices like you, especially because you have that large platform, the Baptist denomination and all the problems of women's ordination, et cetera. I I kind of attended a lot of Baptist church while growing up, but not ordained Baptist. So I'm kind of removed. And then I also grew up in Canada. So I don't know like the whole entirety. There's so many Baptist denominations. I'm just so grateful. And when I went to seminary, I always said to myself, because there were so many male students, I Mm. never want to be a pastor's wife. But you write about being a pastor's (laughs) wife. So share with us. Because you write so and some of the difficulties and then what happened to your husband. So share us a bit about that. Yes. um, Being a pastor's wife is a special place. Uh, (laughs) It's actually part of it's my next book really is my next book is becoming the pastor's wife. So, um, so I'm going to be talking a lot more about it. I know it's, I'm having so much fun writing it. It's really, (laughs) really great. But, um, I, one of the very odd things about being a pastor's wife is that you are seen as a central figure in the church. Um, but you have absolutely no, uh, almost no voice of your own. Um, The only way you are able to make a difference or anything is really through the soft influence um, on your husband, on other pastors and on other people in the church. And so it's uh, you learn really quickly how to um, you learn really quickly where you can speak and where you cannot speak, I think. And it's one of the most challenging, I think, experiences of my life was probably our last five years at that church where we began to really realize how much we were moving away from what the direction the church was heading towards. It's like we were both kind of moving. And so having to figure out, I saw the toll it was taking on my husband, but I couldn't, there was nothing I could do. I couldn't speak out about it. Um, and the toll that it was taking on our, on the people, on the youth and our, you know, the kids in our youth group. And so it was, uh, it was a very challenging, I think, experience emotionally for both my husband and I, um, to be in that. And when it finally all kind of came to a head, um, in some ways, there was a little bit of relief because we could finally speak. And I think that, you know, and I don't think I realized how how repressed I had been for so long that I was afraid. I was so afraid to speak because I was so afraid it would destroy whatever, you know, we had been involved in there, that it would, 
hurt my husband, et cetera. Um, so in some ways it was kind of a relief, although it was a huge shock. <laughs> um, and we still, you know, to this day, we lost so many friends. Um, I mean, it's still a heartache for us because, you know, some, those, most of those friendships have never, never come back. Oh, um, and so it's just, you know, when, when pastors are in churches for this long, it, I mean, it's almost like a divorce oh. when you leave them um, in difficult circumstances. And, and that's probably the best thing I can compare it to is that like, we went through a divorce, um, with our church and it's, um, and it still, it still has left a hole in our lives. Um, but it's also something that we're like, it was really worth it that we did this. Um, so we're glad we did it, but it, it's not something I ever want to go through again. Oh, that sounds so painful. I think losing friends is yeah. so difficult. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for sharing about that. So how did you, because I'm always curious, you know, I don't know how I ever start a book. Well, there's one I, <laughs> I know clearly how I started, but then how do you start? How did you start writing this one? Like what yeah. motivated <laughs> you? And because there's so, as Jamar Tisby said, so much wealth of information, but then also your personal and all these other experiences weaved in there. So it's so beautifully yeah. written, well, so you. accessible and so much information, like all this historical information that just blew me away. So tell me how you began. Yes. So um, I had a step up is that I actually started writing on the anxious bench, which is a blog on Pathios that there's a group blog for religious historians. So I started writing on it in 2015. And on that, I was able to sort of learn a voice that people would listen to. And it was often when I combined my personal experience with whatever historical narrative. So for example, I have my first piece that I think went really big was a piece I wrote on Halloween. Um, and it was called Halloween more Christian than pagan. And it ended up in the Washington post. What? Um, yeah, <laughs> no, this is like before anybody knew who I was or anything. This is back in like 2016, 2015, I think. So, um, and, and the way I told that story is I, I started off narrating um, my kids and I carving pumpkins and, you know, talking about this. It was very short. I was just commenting on this blog, on this um, poll that had come out about how Christians still think Halloween is a pagan holiday. And so I was just commenting. So it, I think I, I learned the voice that that I knew people responded to. Uh -huh. um, and it was actually through writing these blogs that I got asked by the press to consider writing a book. Um, and so when I was, it took me eight months to decide to write the book. This was not, you know, at first I was like, oh my gosh, I, I mean, it was a terrifying sort of thing. It was like, I wanted to do it, but I was terrified. So it took me eight months to agree to do it. And during that time, I had a lot of time to think about it. And I decided that this book needed to be from ancient to modern. I needed I needed to tell people how we got to where we are today. Um, and that the only way I knew how to do it was the way that I teach. So I've been teaching um, these women history surveys since 2008. And the Making of Biblical Womanhood kind of follows my teaching lectures. 
I mean, that's really what it is. It's, um, it's structured around the way that I teach. So like, you know, people always comment on my Paul chapter and they're like, why did you choose first Corinthians 14? And I'm like, because that's what I teach. Um, because when I teach the Roman world, I always tell that story, um, and connect it to first Corinthians 14. And so that's what I did in the book. Um, so that's how I did it. I, sat down, I pulled out all my lectures, structured the book, and um, and then wrote based upon, you know, pulling in my personal story into my lectures that I've been giving since 2008. Wow, it's so, so beautifully written. Yeah. I'm like, I admire oh, you so much. And as a podcaster, I get books sent a lot, but this one was sent by a friend. And I said, oh, oh. did you send it by mistake? And he's like, no, 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 I just wanted you to have a copy. <laughs> That's like, so wow. nice. Yeah, because friends usually don't send books, like <laughs> theological friends, because you already have a ton of books. But I was like, oh, wow, this is a great book. So I've always kind of wanted mm. to have you and to fit you in for uh, my podcast. I'm just so excited oh, to hear all the backstory of how you came to write the book. Mm -hmm. So in the book, you're discussing, you know, because so many churches, and even when you were discussing about being a pastor's wife, mm -hmm. that is so true in so many denominations. And especially in like the ethnic churches, like Korean American mm -hmm. churches, Korean churches where you don't have any power, but you're expected to do a million things right. for free. Right. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And then if one. you're out of line, you know, then you are going to be crucified. You're going to be blamed for everything. Yes. So you have this kind of expectation, this gender expectation, and you write about this gender hierarchy, which you know, was believed to be divinely ordained. Mm -hmm. A biblical woman is a submissive woman. So, you know, I've got lots of different listeners. How do we understand this, where we believe it's like divinely ordained? Yeah, no, um, I think if we think about it in our modern context, um, where this really started, I mean, it really started um, in the 19th century, um, tying this, and it came about, I mean, it's it's very interesting if you follow the history of it, and I had a, I have a scholar friend who a long time ago said something that always stuck with me. Her name's Beverly Gaventa, and I quote her in the book, but she said, she said, I think she said if you look at it she said my gut is that all of the emphasis on the Pauline texts about women be silent really began to be used um, including the changes in bible translations that begin to write people like junia out as apostles in the bible all of those really became popular around the time of suffrage at the end of the 19th century. And so you can think about it at a time when women are speaking out and fighting for the political vote. And all of a sudden they had, you know, they kind of had to come up. Why, why won't we give women the vote? Well, because God said women are supposed to obey men and be submissive to men. And, and we definitely see, I mean, that's, um, it's not the first time we've heard that, but I think in our modern context, it's where the root of what we are arguing about today, this is where it started. Um, and it just kind of continued to evolve throughout the 20th century, um, really picking up speed in post-World War One and World War II, when all of the women were in the jobs, all the men came home, 
we need to get women out of those jobs. And this is when we start having women being fired for getting pregnant and um, getting married even. And, and this really this push to get women back in the home. And that's when we see a return to these texts. And it's, and again, this line, not only is this what women should do, this is what God says women should do. Um, so it was a religious it was a religious text, but it had political and economic motivations. I don't know why we don't recognize that. Yeah. It's so weird. And then you make it so clear. So I'm like, we need to amplify your voice everywhere. Because <laughs> people, people keep misusing these texts. Yes. And I, and then you as a historian, I, this was quite um, interesting for me when you were writing about Peter Abelard and the yeah. anointing because mm -hmm. that anointing passage has always been so important for me but then you mm. you included how Jesus overturns male headship so can you tell us oh yeah because that one I never came across until I read your book and I thought oh really I got it yeah I don't know why I never knew that but I always loved that passage. And I thought, wow, you know, Jesus welcoming this woman and all the men calling her sinful. Of course, every woman is sinful in the Bible. So if you can just share a little bit about that. I thought that was so, so interesting. I, I think this is, um, you know, th that's one of those passages. And of course, this is where the woman um, anoints Jesus, pours the perfume over her feet, over his feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And there's two variations of this passage. Um, the woman with the alabaster jar is often how it's preached in sermons. Um, but it's one of those passages that I think we've heard so much. And we've always heard it through the lens of a woman who is sinful, a woman who is, um, you know, sort of at her last resort, who kind of is doing something she's not supposed to be doing. And Jesus just kind of says, it's okay. You know, it's like he's being kind to her. And we have dismiss the power of that passage and where we have you know because oil I think in many like I grew up Baptist and so we don't use sacred oil I mean the most I knew about oil was when people started doing essential oils and selling that stuff you know and that's not it didn't have any sort of sacred in my tradition but because I'm a medieval scholar I know how important sacred oils are in most of the history of Christianity. And we know like in the very beginning, I mean, this is how kings are anointed. I mean, this is very important when Charlemagne's anointed, you know, it's this oil that is brought down that is put on his head. Even when Clovis is baptized and anointed, you know, it's this very symbolic thing. And so when we have this woman who pours oil on Jesus, I mean, this is not something that it was, e it wasn't easy for me to ignore that. And then also as a medievalist, you know, I've been reading, um, you know, I've been reading people like Abelard and Eloise. It's one of the primary stories I teach because students love the story. Um, you know, it's this, it's this love story gone awry. Um, but Abelard champions Eloise, even when they are in separate monasteries and their marriage has been dissolved. Um, and he champions her. And this is one of the, I mean, he's not He's not really, I wouldn't, he's not a feminist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, he's just a pretty good theologian. And he is also married to this very strong woman who's like, no, no, this, we need, you know, we need you 
to speak out on this issue. And so he does, he speaks out on it and he says, look, it doesn't make sense for women to not be ordained. I mean, it's essentially what he says. He's not arguing for them to be priests, but he says it doesn't make sense for them not to be ordained. And this is the passage he draws from. He says, look, a woman ordains the most important king that we have. Yeah. I so, think, I mean, it's, yeah, it's yeah. just incredible. I'm so glad when I read that because I didn't recognize that Jesus was actually overturning how it has been done. So that was, <laughs> that's so powerful, overturning male yeah. leadership, because mm-hmm. I've always you know, since I started seminary, I just thought, yeah, Jesus is a feminist, but then now to have all these other points that you bring up in the book as a historian was so, so helpful for me. So thank you for that. And, you know, you as a Baptist, you brought in some ecumenical, some historical information, and you brought in uh, Pope John Paul II's stance in his 1988. So, can do you, can you expand on that because that was so yeah. wow, I, that was so interesting to me too so you know john paul ii isn't is he's an interesting guy um <laughs> he's not you know the his he wrote this essentially it's a series it's a very long text um it's called theology of the body is the way that it's usually referred to and it's not again it's not a feminist text i mean he's actually arguing why women can't be ordained as priests in the church But in the midst of that argument, and part of that, he argues it's an ontological difference. It's because um, of the sexual, you know, women and men are so different as sexual beings. Um, But within that, he also then argues against um, subordination within marriage. And so, I mean, it's this really fascinating, complex text um, where, you know, he holds the party line of the Catholic Church that women can't be ordained or at least not be ordained as priests. Um, but at the same time, he's like, women aren't supposed to be, I mean, the only person you're subordinate to is to God and is to, um, you know, and this is why women aren't ordained because of the, the male priesthood ordained by God. But this does not mean that ordinary women have to be submissive to ordinary men. And, and that's really, so, I mean, it's this, it's this fascinating argument where he um, says something that's quite revolutionary within Protestantism, because in Protestantism, there's this argument that women not only submit to male clergy, they submit to male clergy because they submit to their husbands. Whereas in Catholicism, the argument is you submit to male clergy, but you don't submit to your husbands, <laughs> you know, at least not in the same way. So it's a really fascinating argument that shows how much our, um, our, our different theologies shapes our understanding of gender. It's not gender shaping our theology. It's who we are and the traditions that we've grown up in that we are then applying to our gender rules. Um, and so, you know, that's why I say in the, the book that patriarchy shapeshifts. Um, it's never everywhere the same. Yeah. Thank you so much for including that because I think the Catholics can actually use it to to argue for women's ordination. Well, anyway, yes, we'll see. yeah, they. Um, I I believe in nuns. <laughs> I the power of nuns. I mean, they are fierce and they are theologically astute, 
and um, the power of the movement behind to ordain women within the Catholic Church is a mighty movement. And I, I can't wait to see where it goes. Yeah. And I have one former student who is ordained in the Catholic church, like that kind of, and, you know, they don't recognize it, but still she is doing ministry. um, So, you know, we'll see where it all leads, but it's exciting time. I think, especially uh, just reflecting on what you said, uh, what Mm -hmm. the Pope had written earlier and that was in 1988. So that's kind of in a recent history. Yeah, yeah, especially for a medievalist, that's very recent. Yeah, history, so. <laughs> yeah. and then um, I loved your sections on Bible because we know, yeah. you know many many people in the church will use Paul mm-hmm. to um, say, "Oh, woman, you know, you are subordinate, silent, what, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. But then you write about, um, you know, what if the household codes can be read as resistance? narratives to Roman patriarchy. And I thought, wow, that is so interesting. So if you can expand on that and tell us what all that means for us. Well, I think the tension is that on the one hand, um, the Bible is presented to us in a way that we can read ourselves and that we can understand it and we can understand the salvation narrative, the story of God coming down um, to to bring us back into a relationship. And that's really the story of the Bible is God coming back down and bringing us back, trying to bring us back into a relationship. Um, but even though we can understand that on our own, it doesn't mean that we understand everything about the Bible on our own. And it doesn't mean that we can take the Bible out of its historical context and apply everything in it to our modern circumstances. And I think that's where we are, have, you know, I I mean, I get a lot of, I get in a lot of trouble for joining in the inerrancy debate. Um, And, you know, people have said all sorts of things, you know, I, I don't think they understand how, how faithful I am to the Bible. I, I really do. It's always funny. My problem, of course, is that I don't think inerrancy is about the Bible. I think inerrancy is about a particular interpretation of the Bible. Um, and I think that's where we 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 say we can read the Bible literally, and then we rip it out of historical context. And the household codes is one of those where we have taken a first century world and we have taken a first century patriarchal world in which women legally were subordinate to their husbands. And there's a lot of nuance within that. Um, there's a lot of variations within it, but it, it that was that was law. And here we have a Christian community in which women are elevated. I mean, they played significant roles. We know that the places that these household code passages were preached were in house churches where women were leaders. And there were slaves in, you know, the enslaved people in those houses were also part of the Christian community and the children. And so you can imagine this Christian community like being like, well, how do we take the legal understanding of the world in which we live and apply it to this really strange community we have where we are all one in Christ? And I think that household codes is a, is that's what we find in the Bible. It's not a perfect solution. Um, it's not trying to overturn the patriarchal world. It's just trying to make sense of it within the new world of, um, you know, this new Christian world that is also stemming from a Jew, Jewish world that also has a tradition of elevating women. So I think we have to, 
you know, as I said, historical context matters. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, I wish people would, I wish the Bibles would have all this commentary beside it so that they will be able, the readers will be able to understand <laughs> because, you know, people criticize people like you and me that, you know, we're not taking the Bible seriously. We're right. misreading it because we're not taking things literally. And, you know, within the Korean American communities, the faith communities, you know, they pretty well read it literally. Yeah. I've kind of come out of that era, you know, that community, but still, you know, I go in and out. So I know what is still present and what is expected. And people in that community may not like me because, oh, she's an ordained woman, et cetera. You know, what, right. you know, why is she doing this? So I, I love the fact, you know, that you, you were writing about Paul and maybe Paul didn't mean it that way. And, you know, we are, you know, Paul's purpose, you write, wasn't to emphasize male authority. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you want to say more about oh, that. Oh, sure. You, you, you um, that was Aristotle too. Yeah. No, I, I've become even more convinced of this. You know, I, one of the things about writing a book is that then you learn all the stuff that you wish you had put in that book, yeah. you know, and that's when you have to write another book, right? <laughs> Um, and so one of the things that I have been doing a, a very deep dive on is a better understanding of the, the world of Paul. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because I, and I've tried to make this distinction. I don't think Paul is a feminist. I don't think he's trying to overturn patriarchal values of the first century world. I mean, he's, um, he like Jesus are both very Jewish, um, and because they are very Jewish, they also grew up in a tradition where we see women's voices have been elevated. I mean, we think about people like Miriam. I mean, Miriam was a prophet in the Jewish world. She was, she's the first mentioned prophet in the Old Testament, I think. Um, even before Moses is identified as a prophet, Miriam's identified as a prophet. Um, we can think about Deborah. I mean, there is, Deborah was a judge who made decisions just like Moses did and carried that authority. And so this is also part, I mean, Paul knew this. Um, he was, and so it is not a surprise for him to have, for women to also hold those types of positions within the, the beginning of the Christian world. And so I don't think Paul, he's not, you know, he uses what is around him. And there are these wealthy women and these women who are very strong supporters of Christianity, who are very well educated, and Paul Paul uses them. He's like, "You are my co-workers in Christ. Um, you have been in the you have been in Christ before me." That's what he says to Junia. Um, you know, to Phoebe. I mean, he pretty much. You know, I think this is also people don't understand that a lot of the New Testament. You know, these texts. It's not like a single author. It's not like Paul sitting in his office like writing everything by himself. He has people helping him write him down. He has people probably putting input. It's more like a, you know, a community. And so it's not as long, a hard stretch of the imagination to say, maybe Phoebe was part of that community that helped um, formulate Romans. And yeah. then it's no surprise that then she takes Romans back and that she's the one who actually reads it to these early house churches. Um, mm. You know, I mean, I was just in the Priscilla catacombs two weeks ago in Rome and I do not know how anyone walks out of those catacombs and does not realize that women played significant leadership roles in the early church. And I mean, this was this was the world of the third century Roman house churches. Um, and so, I mean, it's just we 
by ripping um, these texts out of their historical context and trying to apply them to our modern gender hierarchy that stems more from the aftermath of World War II and a negative reaction to feminism in the 1960s than it ever has to do with actual the biblical context. That so. is so amazing. And then, you know, you include Romans 16, where there are 10 women and, yeah. you know, we just skip over that. And sometimes we make them into men too. Yes. So, you know, yeah. That is our problem. How it is. We don't we, see women. We don't yeah, see we, women. Yeah. And then, but that's incredible that they are named because in other places, you know, Peter's mother-in-law, you know, yes. people are given names and the woman that anoints Jesus, we don't know her name. The Samaritan woman, we don't know her name, mm -hmm. but it's significant that here they are listed and you do write about it. So I just right. find that so interesting, but to just leave that aside, because I now want, want to move into uh, the Reformation because yeah. I am Presbyterian. The Reformation is so <laughs> important. And you give so much insight in this whole section with the Reformation yeah. and what it did for women and what it did not. So can you just share us a little bit about what the Reformation affected, how it affected women? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, this was probably the chapter, aside from the Paul chapter, um, it was the chapter that I struggled the most with because this is my, you know, I'm a medievalist, but I hang out with a lot of reformation scholars and this is a touchy subject. <laughs> it's like, you know, people was the reformation good or bad for women. This has been going on for forever. And there's very heated debates all around it. Um, but at the end of the day, what we can say is that the reformation changed things for women. And in some of the ways that it changed things for women was good. The medieval world, um, you know, the, the least valuable position for a woman in, the medi in medieval Christianity was to be a wife and a mother um, because you were sexually active. And, and that was the furthest you were from God. After the Reformation, women's roles as wives and mothers are elevated. This, this is certainly, you know, does a lot of good things for women. At the same time, however, it also removes what I call the medieval loophole. Um, because in the medieval world, women who forsook um, sexual activity and dedicated their lives to God could wield the same type of religious authority or very similar religious authority to men. Um, when the role of wife becomes elevated, you think about in the legal framework of the early modern world, women are legally under the authority of their husbands. In some ways, very similar to the Roman world. They're under the authority of their husbands. So when suddenly the highest position in the church becomes married women, it carries with them that legal, they're under the authority of their husbands. So what we end up with, and this is why I wrote in the book, I said, you know, the Reformation may have gotten rid of the priest, but it replaced them with the husband. Yeah. And, um, and this is where we start getting all of this, you know, that why are women, why can't women be priests no longer? Is it because of their bodies? Um, now it's because they're married, you know, essentially <laughs> that's what women are to be. And so it's this, it's not that it makes things worse for women because patriarchy is still there. Mm -hmm. It just changes it. And, um, and it, it rewrites the rules for why women can't lead. And it 
more firmly religiously establishes women under the authority of men. Well, that's it. So. To me, that's so incredible. And then you do write, you know, Reformation theology should have set women yes. free, but it yes. didn't. Yeah. So uh, it's like this ongoing patriarchy and then the priest yes. being replaced by the husband. That is, that's just wow to me. And because your historical understanding really helps us understand why we are still struggling with this. Yes. Why so many denominations are still struggling with it. It just, exactly. it's unbelievable to me. So um, you all, you know, be, because you're in the evangelical world, um, how has your book um, been impacting evangelical women? Oh. Like, yeah, what, what has been happening in that world? So I, um, I, I tell people that even before the book was officially published, you know, I'm coming up on the two year anniversary of it as we record this. Um, and it's, oh, thank you. And even as soon as the ARCs, you know, the advanced reader copies started going out, I started getting messages from women and, and men too, but primarily women and women all over the world. Um, and I still get letters um, so often from, you know, they get, they contact me on social media, they email me, um, letting me know how the book has changed their lives and how they have started Bible studies within their own churches, how they have started, you know, I, I told the story early on how one group that contacted me, they actually wrote a letter to their elders, um, listing out all the reasons why the church needs to reconsider its stance on women in or and ordination. Um, I just received an email not too long ago from a church that's um, close to me that has is most is complementarian and they're going to be leading a summer bible study on my book and i'm really excited about that i mean because i've seen i've had i've had people come up to me that said that their that my book formed the basis of their church shifting on this issue and it's it's really incredible to um you know to to get to be a to play a part in maybe change in the wow. evangelical world, you know, um, I am so grateful so, for your voice. It yeah, is so, I'm, so wonderful. And you're not affecting just the evangelical world, but the whole kind of Christian world, the Catholic, yeah. I think it's such an important book. And, you know, some books like this may be too heavy to read, but you have just the amount, you know, the right balance, oh, the heaviness and the incorporating your own personal it's just, it was so meaningful to me. So I'm so grateful mm. for you writing it and making such an impact around the world. I know many, um, you know, women of color will be affected by this because many churches like the Korean churches are still struggling with women yeah. leadership, either it be deacons or elders or ordained ministers. So before you leave, because I know you yeah. have a very busy schedule, tell us what you are working on now. Right. So um, I... You know, when I originally agreed to do the making of biblical womanhood, I thought I would just drop it out there and then I'd run back to my world of medieval sermons. <laughs> and um, when I realized that I could maybe really help in this issue, I've agreed to write two more books, um, Ooh, probably 
probably be the end of it for me. I tell people it's my trilogy and then I'm out. Um, but my current book that I'm working on is called Becoming the Pastor's Wife. And it again is telling a long history from the ancient all the way up. And what it's doing is it's connecting the rise of the role of pastor's wife with the decline of female ordination. And, um, and I have through looking at this and studying this, I think there is a link, um, between the elevation of this dependent leadership role and the decline of women's independent leadership roles within the church. So, um, so I'm telling that story, right? I've been writing the first and second chapters together, which are women in the early church, as well as women in the early medieval world. And my, you know, I'll give you a spoiler. My chapter for women in the early medieval world is called Together for the Gospel. And I really, really like that title because it also (laughs) plays on um, the Gospel Coalition and kind of reframes that a little bit. And so I'm I'm really, um, I'm really enjoying writing this book and I'm doing the same sort of thing. I'm mixing personal narrative, um, with the history. So, um, I'm hoping maybe I can help uh, move the needle on women's ordination. Oh, I think you are. Even with this book, I think you're doing great things. So when are we expecting that book to go? My manuscript is due, um, December of this year. Um, so it should pre-orders will be out next spring. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's very exciting. And yeah, what was, I'm, I'm, what's the title of it? Or you have uh, the working title is Becoming the Pastor's Wife. Okay, Becoming the Pastor's Wife. So, and it has a, we haven't decided the, the, the secondary title of it yet, but okay. yeah, it's okay. Becoming that's, the Pastor's Wife. I think that's so exciting. And I know Kate Bowler um, wrote a book, I think, The yeah. Preacher's Wife or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I know she interviewed me for some little section in that book, but this is so yeah. that you're writing this new book. I think that's going to be such an important book for both men and women. And, you know, this one too, I'm hoping that more men read it. I know a lot of women are oh, reading yeah. it and being comforted by it, but I think many of the men um, need to read it. And actually it was a male friend that sent it to me. I, you so. know, I, I haven't mean meant to ignore the men. I think my heart is just for women who yeah. are called to ministry and have been suffocated, you know, for so long. And so I think that's why I always, because my heart is for women, but no men all the time reach out to me and tell me, and a lot of pastors, um, are reading, you know, are reading it. So we'll see. That's so wonderful. Well, keep your heart with the woman because we need more voices (laughs) like you to speak up for us. I'm like, there's a lot of things you wrote there that I would never be able to kind of say. So I'm so glad that you did it and wrote it. And I look so forward to your next book and maybe you can come back again and talk with me on Madame podcast. So thank you so much, Dr. Beth Allison Barr for being with me and sharing a bit of your life, your journey and your book. And it's been life-changing for so many people and for myself. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Join Dr. Ryan Bird, a leading expert in American religion, for our Homebird Christianity's online teaching class, exploring the fascinating world of the nuns, the increasingly significant group of Americans who claim no religious affiliation. Whether you're a student scholar, or just someone who wants to know more about America's changing religious landscape, this class is for you. Please join Homebird Christianity's class, The Nuns, on May 23rd at noon Eastern Time. 
It will be hosted by Dr. Trip Fuller and Dan Koch and taught by Dr. Ryan Burge. It is free, but donations are welcome. Go to www.tripfuller.com to register. Watchfire Media publishes beautiful, spiritually expansive children's books, including the middle grades anthology, Holy Troublemakers, and Unconventional Saints, which tells the stories of 36 people of diverse faith who have rocked the religious boat on behalf of love and justice, and the brand new picture book, Dear Mama God, a simple child's prayer of wonder and gratitude addressed to the divine as a mother. Watchfire Media is a nonprofit independent press dedicated to good stories that help us envision the world that could be. You can learn more at www.watchfire.org. Please order these books today. Joshua Benjamin Lee is a computer science student at UPET. He builds websites, does video editing, creates graphic design, and more. He works as a consultant at JL. Please contact him at joshua-lee-portfolio.com for more information and to check out his fees. Thank you. For sponsorship inquiries, please email madangpodcast.gmail.com.